Well, I did not mention early, earlier, uh, because I wasn't here doing the mentioning, um, that I, I didn't give you the heads up unless you saw it on the bulletin, that the uh, sermon passages from Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 7 through 10, we're actually going to read 7 through 16 uh, this morning. I'm kind of approaching this as a part one and a part two, and a message I've called Gifts of the Ascended King. And so turn quickly, if you haven't turned there already, if you need a Bible, there's one provided for you in the, uh, underneath the chairs in front of you, you'll see sort of spread out here and there, little black hardback books, those are Bibles, um, Ephesians chapter 4, and my apologies, I didn't make note of the page number, but we'll have the words on the screen if you need to be turning even while uh, we're underway here. We're continuing this series through uh, the book of Ephesians and finding it rich at every single turn. But I'm going to ask you if you are able to stand out of reverence for the word of God, attentiveness to his voice as it speaks with his authority, as we listen for the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for a true and living word, and we open it now, as always, with the expectation that you have something to say to us in it, knowing every one of us better than we know ourselves, knowing the needs of our heart in ways we don't know them, and knowing what it is we need to hear from you. We open our ears and our hearts to receive and ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory and our good. Lord, I pray that you would move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today to communicate to us, your people, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, any of us who decorate the house at Christmas time know that there is a certain amount of preliminary work that goes into that, right? So you have to get the boxes out of the uh, attic or the closet or the garage or wherever you keep them. And then you've got to unpack some things. If you're like us, 
we sort of have to unpack to even remember what we have, first of all, because it's been a whole year since we saw them last and, and that sort of thing. And then you have to uh, unwind the lights, maybe even untangle them a little bit to see uh, you know, if, if they all work and so forth. There's, there's just a certain amount of preliminary work, and those tasks are just part of the process. You can't ignore them. You can't rush them. It just, just is what it is. Well, I thought of that in relation to this morning sermon passage because it requires a similar uh, sort of preliminary work, I would say. Uh, that meaning, uh, this passage we just read, um, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, really uh, together communicate the message uh, as a whole that we'll be interested in hearing and discerning. But there are a few verses right here in, in, in verses 7 through 10 that really have to be sort of unpacked and unwound a little bit in order to understand that, that overarching message. And so this morning is, is going to be um, maybe a little less sermony and, and, uh, and, and maybe more preface to the sermon, the rest of the sermon that follows next week. But um, again, as I alluded to in my newsletter article, there are just things there that need to be unpacked and explained and that people are interested uh, in understanding. But I want to give a little bit of context here so that, that we go into this before we get down into the weeds, as it were, before we start untangling the lights, so to speak, that we, um, that we, we try to do a flyover here and get a sense of what's the message being communicated to us overall. And I'd remind you that uh, in the prior passage from last week, from verses four through six, we saw this emphasis on the oneness of the body and the oneness of the faith. If, you're look, if you have your Bible and you're looking back there in verse 4 and following, you see there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And, and we, he opened up that uh, chapter 4 with this, this message of the way that we ought to live graciously toward one another begins with humility as the sort of the chief virtue and that, that all of that is necessary for the purpose of maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's a real priority on the oneness of the body and maintaining the oneness of the body. And so from there, he goes on to say, beginning in verse 7 and through 16, that in that unified body, so here's the, here's the, 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 the more overarching message I'm, I'm suggesting of this passage we just read, that in that unified body, gifts are given to each one for the good of the whole body. It has a ring of familiarity to it for those who uh, no, 1 Corinthians 12, right, with a, that passage that deals with spiritual gifts. There's one body, but many members. You remember that whole metaphor that's used there? And uh, it says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that there's that sort of thing, one body that we're seeking to maintain, but there's many uh, members and many uh, gifts distributed to those members. All of that works together for the good of the whole. That's at the heart of this message here uh, in Ephesians 4. And so you could really read this from 7 and then pick up in 11 and following, and you'd get a gist of that, um, a, a little clearer idea of that. So, for example, 
if we looked at verse 7 and then read right to verse 11, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Grace is given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. And here's some of the gifts that he gave for the purpose of equipping the body and building it up. And he closes that passage in verse 16 so that when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Okay, so that's the, that's the overarching message that's being communicated to us here in this latter part of Ephesians 4. But then inserted in between verses 7 through 11 are a couple of references that at, on, on first read can really get you lost in the weeds. I don't know if you just felt that at all as we were reading through any of that, but what's that all about and what's he talking about here? So I, I want to, again, sort of try to unpack a little bit of that this morning so that we really profit even more from uh, the continuation of this next week. But he, he mentions here, uh, this, he provides for us this picture of Christ ascended and Christ descended. And so uh, I want to unpack that a little bit and try to uh, shed some light on that. First of all, in verse 8, this reference to Christ's ascension, because it had said in verse 7, grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, verse 8, when he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse 8 there, he's citing Psalm 68, 18, which says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell here. The, the picture here is of a victorious king returning from battle in this case, ascending the mountain to Jerusalem. That's the ascent that uh, the, the psalmist would be speaking of most literally and directly. Ascending, Jerusalem, uh, ascending to Jerusalem, returning from battle, and following behind is uh, a train, a host of captives in, in his train. That is, it's a, pulling up the caboose is a host of captives. And, and in Psalm 68... Uh, almost certainly those captives are, that's a reference to enemy soldiers who have been taken as prisoners of war. And this was, this really still is a practice, I guess, in, in combat. I mean, uh, prisoners of war are carried along with the forces as they return back to wherever it is they're going. But you see different records of this in the ancient world where, um, where there really was a a train of captives. In some cases, it's some of those uh, uh, ancient civilizations, um, they, they, were, they were handled in quite brutal, demoralizing ways as, as, they, as they pulled them along with them. Uh, it's not necessarily, that it does, this doesn't necessarily carry that implication, but it is saying those captives who are prisoners of war following in the train of this victorious army as Paul applies it here in Ephesians 4, uh, the reference may have in view uh, enemy captives. It may also have in view friendly combatants who were taken prisoner and who have been liberated uh, by the victorious army. Part of the problem we have here in this 
passage is there are some things that just aren't clear. And what I'll tell you is, um, there's a, you can go down this rabbit hole and you'll find it to be a bottomless rabbit hole <laughs> in the sense that it, it can be interesting and can be, uh, you, you know, sort of an exciting thing to explore, but you'll not find any more definitive answers to it than anybody else has in the last couple thousand years. But it may have that in view, both, both uh, enemy combatants taken prisoner of war or uh, friendly combatants that have been liberated from their captivity through this victorious king. But that's what the, the Psalm 8 is kind of, or Psalm 68 rather, is sort of providing a picture of that. This victorious king ascending back up the mountain from battle um, with this parade uh, you know, that sort of ensues and part of the train as those captives with him. He's also bringing with him the spoils of war. And again, that's a real life thing. And if you've been to, um, you know, museums around the world, I'm thinking about the British Museum in particular, where there are, uh, there are, it's amazing how much there is to see in the British Museum. But um, a, a lot of what's there to see didn't come from Britain. It came from other parts of the world uh, where they've brought back monuments, uh, uh, statues, artifacts of all sorts. That are, that are sort of the spoils of war. Here in Psalm 68, it makes reference to having received gifts from the enemy. You know, whether those are freely given <laughs> or whether they came with a little arm twisting, I don't know, but he's received gifts from men. And then uh, verse 8 of Ephesians 4, the way Paul applies this, is he gives gifts. He receives them from the enemy, gives them to his own people. But all together, we are really supposed to come away with the sort of picture like we get from a Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a little uh, uh, stumble in the language there. But by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame. And this is part of what's being conveyed, in other words, here, that, 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 that Christ who gave gifts to men is the Christ who ascended, having triumphed over the enemy and puts him to open shame. So all of that sheds some light on the following couple of verses, and it sheds only a little light <laughs> on the following couple of verses uh, that, Christ, that tells us that Christ descended. We see first Christ ascended, and then this mention of Christ descended. Because it says in verse 9 there, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And this phrase, as it's, it's translated here in the ESV, the lower regions, the earth, in other translations, the one that you're reading maybe, in front of you it says the lower regions of the earth, the lower parts of the earth, uh, the lower earthly regions, I think maybe it says in the NIV. Uh, but the, however it's phrased, it's a matter of great debate no matter what. And frankly, no matter how it's translated, it doesn't really uh, clear, clear up the matter altogether. But there's really two primary interpretations of that, I would say. The, what is he talking about there? One would be 
that he's speaking of Jesus' incarnation and then his death that followed. That is to say that what, what he's, when he says the lower regions, that it refers to the earth. That Christ who dwelled in heaven and uh, in, in Philippians 2 didn't consider all of that something to be grasped, something uh, equality with God, something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men to earth. So he who lived in an ascended place descended to the lower regions, the earth, became man for the sake of man, um, died for man, and then was raised again to liberate man. So that's one, uh, one way of understanding this reference here in Ephesians 4, 9, is the descent of Jesus was his descent from heaven to earth and all that that uh, entailed, including his death, etc. The, the second interpretation of that is that it refers to Jesus' descent into Hades or the place of the dead. That after his death, but before his resurrection, he went into the place of the dead to liberate Old Testament saints, those who, those who were redeemed by God before the death and resurrection of Christ, and who Luke 16 uh, describes as being in a place of paradise, while those who are unredeemed are in a place of torment. Now, I would tell you again, uh, that's a bit of an obscure reference in Luke 16. There's not really a clarity or definitive kind of explanations on this. But, but again, a way of understanding, of trying to understand or interpret what's being said here is that Jesus descended to the place of the dead so that those who had died, those redeemed people of God who had died before the finished work of Christ on the cross and, and in his resurrection, that he went to uh, liberate them or, or, or bring them out with him, so to speak. And, or, at the same time, to proclaim victory uh, to, to all of the forces of hell, so to speak. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, the other reference to this uh, sort of Christ's descent, the other passage that is pointed to as a reference of Christ's descent into hell is uh, 1 Peter 3, 19. And it's only a little bit Help, more helpful, or a little bit clearer, perhaps, than, uh, than this one. Those are the only two you get. So as I alluded to this in my newsletter article, saying that this is one of these phrases, we, and as, as it happened today was the Sunday when we're reciting the Apostles' Creed, and this is one of those phrases that uh, a lot of times there are people uncomfortable with that, uh, with that, that statement, Christ descended into hell. Where does it say that in the Bible? I've heard that question a lot. I don't know if you've had or if you've asked that. Um, again, there's really only two places that, that make uh, kind of a, a veiled reference to it, one here in Ephesians 4, the other in 1 Peter 3.19. But it refers to him going and, and, and preaching um, to those in, in prison. I don't remember exactly. I didn't, didn't pull it out here to quote it exactly. But the point there is one interpretation of what happened here is Jesus, uh, after his death, before his resurrection, goes to the place of the dead, um, takes those who were redeemed to the Lord with him, proclaims his victory uh, over the unredeemed and, uh, and all the demons and the devil himself, and then ascends on high. 
Now, a couple of things that are important to say. Number one, I think we can say quite definitively, Jesus did not go to hell to suffer torment as further punishment for sin or to suffer any further for sin. Um, He said on the cross, it is finished, which means it was finished. The work of of, uh, securing forgiveness of sins had been completed there. He didn't go to, to suffer torment in hell. And again, this is one of our problems is we've got uh, th- that, that, that sort of category in our head where we think of that's what it must mean to go to descend into hell. I think we, we ought to be able to say pretty def- definitively that's not the case. The other thing I would say is that uh, it, it really, this, this reference in uh, verse 9 really could... Uh, contain both, uh, both his, his descent from heaven to earth. In fact, I would say, um, in my opinion, it, it at least includes that. Uh, that. That there's enough other places in the scripture where that language is used to re- that, that, that the ascended Christ descends to the earth. Uh, that, that sort of picture, I think, uh, certainly uh, that is uh, fitting with the meaning of this passage here, but again, it could also um, include the other, and, and that, would, that would make sense. What it doesn't include is his suffering torment as further um, pen, payment for the penalty of sin. But verse 10 then uh, says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And, and again, part of what I would say is we try to zoom out, because uh, I've just taken you way in uh, into the weeds, right? As we try to zoom out a little bit and, and look at that, um, part of what I think is, he, it's, it's more clear that he's trying to communicate is that Jesus saved to the uttermost. Uh, there are a number of ways you could say that, but that is he, he um, descended to the lowest lows and he ascended to the highest heights. It says, far, you know, above the highest heavens. Well, how, how high is that? How do you go higher than the highest? But you see, he's, he's trying to find a language that says he's gone to the very depths. He's gone to the very heights. He is, he is Lord over all things, visible and invisible in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Lord of it all and declares himself so. Uh, Parades himself through the heavens as so. That he might fill all things with his glory. Now, we must say that uh, that is important if it weren't God wouldn't have put it in the Bible. But at the same time, um, it, uh, it, it, it risks for us, if we, if we pass by that too quickly, it risks obscuring the, the, the greater message that he's making, that Christ, who is absolutely Lord, has conquered to the uttermost the enemy, and in his ascension on high, has given gifts to his church so that we might be uh, part of the, uh, the vessel through which he fills all things. And so we will um, tie a little bow around this passage on, on that note 
and continue next week, picking up in verse um, 11 through 16, as we consider more clearly and more practically uh, in what ways he gives gifts and builds up the body through them. Well, let's close in a word of prayer as we move to the Lord's table together. Father, we praise you as the one true God, Lord of heaven and earth. And we bow our hearts to Christ who is Lord of all. And Lord, we thank you, we thank you that we are among the captives set free, as it were. That we are among those considered friends. That we are among those receiving gifts from a good king. And thank you, Lord, for your great love and for the sacrifice that you made to pay for it. And God, we pray that you would uh, more and more enlighten our understanding of how great you are and how great your love is toward us, that we might live by the grace that you've imparted to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.